Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about another story by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, this time, it is The Alchemist. This is another of these uh, very early H.P. Lovecraft stories. This one was written in 1908 when Lovecraft was uh, was just 18 years old. It is a market improvement over The Beast in the Cave, which we've <laughs> also covered on this podcast. Uh, there's There's a lot of really fun stuff in this story. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, read it a couple times in prep for this podcast. There there are some questionable choices he makes, but again, to see the improvement of The Beast in the Cave to The Alchemist is really cool, and to watch Lovecraft develop as a writer in this way has been a real treat. Yeah, I think we're going to pick some nits. I'm going to put my medieval historian hat on here and definitely pick some nits. But I'll say up front that we're just doing that for fun, right? To really kind of investigate this story, to interrogate this story. This is a really good story for an 18-year-old. And uh, it's totally not fair for a uh, someone who actually teaches history at the university level to be picking on uh, what a teenager does and does not know about the, the Middle Ages, right? <laughs> like, I wouldn't do that to a student, but we're going to do it to Lovecraft today. Yeah, right. I mean, this is just a spooky story. It's meant to be a horror tale. It's got spooky elements, and it's really playing with the imagination more than it is trying to be accurate. Though, yes, there are some things that could be done to tighten it up a little bit or, you know, at least investigate the subject that Lovecraft is writing about. And we will be getting up to that because we do like to do some story doctoring. It keeps us sharp and it, and it keeps our writer hats on, which is something we like to do with this podcast anyway. But let's get to the story before we start uh, taking it apart. Yes, we're putting the, the discussion before the cart or something like that today. But uh, <laughs> uh, let's get into it. High up. Crowning the grassy summit of a swelling mound whose sides are wooded near the base with the gnarled trees of the primeval forest stands the old chateau of my ancestors. Now, so that's the uh, opening line of The Alchemist, and it is a really evocative description, right? We get a, a nice romantic landscape here with ruins and a hill and a forest. There's an emphasis on age and lineage. Also, great verbs in this sentence as well. Crown and stand are the, the two things that this old chateau is doing. Great, active, strong verbs there. And speaking of chateau, right, that is a, a nice French way of saying castle. And indeed, this story is set in France. And the deal is this. This castle dates from the High Middle Ages. Uh, the narrator describes this as the age of feudalism, and it was one of the most impregnable fortresses in all of France, and it never fell to any besieging army. But it has fallen now, uh, into ruins at least, and only one of the four towers still stands. And of course, the decline of the house coincides with the decline of the family. And uh, our narrator here, this is a first-person story, by the way. Uh, our narrator is named Antoine. Uh, so Antoine is the last of his family. He's 90 now. He has no heirs. And he's about to, to tell us, and, and, and maybe he's even writing this down as he nears death, uh, he's going to tell us the story of how his family fell into ruin over the course of several centuries. And indeed, Antoine himself never even knew his parents. His mother died giving birth to him, and his father died in an accident a few months before that. And it turns out that uh, these deaths, uh, or at least the death of his father, is the, the result of a curse. We're going to learn more about that in a moment. But first, I think we should pause and talk about this opening, about this, this setup to the story here. I have just paraphrased the first three paragraphs. But these are dense. They're full of images, also full of information. And so... 
you know, as you said at the top, Brandon, we want to put our writer's hat on, on this episode. I mean, that is kind of our MO with these early Lovecraft stories so far. Uh, but let's talk about how this opening works for you as a hook. What do you like about this? What, what, what don't you like? I really enjoyed this opening, actually. I thought it was very strong. You're right to point out that Lovecraft is using a lot of strong verbs and descriptive language. And it's it's just the right amount of description here. Later on in this story, I think he goes overboard a little bit as we get to the end. Uh, especially he has just blocks of paragraphs, you know, long, long, long paragraphs. But this is cut up really nicely. Each paragraph works well to introduce us first to the chateau, then to the family line and what's going on, how everything has fallen into ruin. And then we talk about the family itself. The narrator is 90 years old. He is still in this house, but he won't ask for help. He's basically an invalid, in some sense, living in a castle or at least a shut-in. And he won't ask for help from anybody. He's never gone down to the village, it seems, to meet the people. This is kind of a haunted house story told from the perspective of the ghost in some ways, <laughs> uh, though there are more ghosts in this story than than the real man who haunts it. But for me, the opening really works. I don't really have any uh, complaints about the opening. I like the introduction of the family curse. I like the Batman stuff that goes on here, how he's raised <laughs> by his butler. Uh, but, you know, I, I if this guy... If this butler, Pierre, were my tutor uh, and I had any contact with the outside world beyond Pierre, I might have some real issues with him uh, the older <laughs> I got, the more I was exposed to the world. But I like it. I like this stuff. I like the orphan story, the locked in the castle, the old man retelling this story about a family curse. At this point in the story, all of it works. I don't think it will all work at least some of the plot elements by the time we get to the end of the story. And we also are going to literally find a bat cave, I think, at the end of this story <laughs> as well. Uh, that's a great call. I had not been thinking very much about Batman while reading this, but you're right. It's almost the same story, except, you know, totally the way that Lovecraft would write it. Well, we, we've got this hook now. And, and of course, we know that Antoine is not going to die from this curse. He's, he's told us already. He's narrating the story to us. So the, the question now is, how does all of this unfold? How does he escape the curse? And so now we can get into this this first act here. And look, uh, this is Lovecraft's Poe-inspired teenage fantasy. So the action in this story is not going to really be very Batman-esque. It's, it's mostly going to involve research. And we do get a bit of a research montage now. We get it like right up front. Antoine didn't know about the curse for a long time. His his guardian, maybe we just call him his butler. I don't know. Maybe we'll just call him <laughs> Alfred for fun. Uh, but his guardian hid this information from him. But when he found out about this curse, he spent the hours of his childhood poring over the ancient tomes that filled the shadow-haunted library of the chateau. Great phrase there. And what he's chiefly interested in are the, the dark and the occult in nature, but he does also try to learn about his family history, even as Pierre, his guardian, is trying to keep this from him. And he does learn, though, that for centuries, the, the male heirs of this medieval aristocratic family have all died around their 32nd birthday. There's uh, more to it than that, and we're about to find out, but I do want to point out here that 32 is the age that Christ began his ministry. It's an extraordinarily significant number in Western literature. Uh, uh, maybe we can think about that in the discussion a little bit. But at any rate, when Antoine turns 21, his guardian gives him a family document that has been passed down through the centuries that explains this whole curse business. So so let's get that narrative and then we'll pause and talk about 
the family curse. So the backstory begins in the 13th century. The Count and his young son are on one side of this story, and then the family of Michel Mauvais, uh, Evil Mike is what that means in English, or Bad Mike, maybe, uh, are on <laughs> I the think other. It's bad Mike. Bad Mike, yeah, yeah, it's better than Evil Mike. This is why writers need editors. Uh, so Michel Mauvais, Bad Mike, uh, dwelled on the aristocratic estates and was little above the rank of peasant. I'm not sure what that means. We're going to talk about that later. But what matters for the story right now is that Michel Mauvais was interested in black magic and alchemy. Uh, he had studied beyond the custom of his kind, is what Antoine says. Michel Mauvais was old when this incident occurred, and his adult son, Charles, uh, Charles, uh, Charles was also a, a wizard and alchemist, and so he was known as Charles le Sorcier, uh, Charles the, the, the wizard, Charles the sorcerer. And the, the rumors about these two, about this father-son duo here, are not good. Uh, Michel Mauvais is said to have burnt his wife alive as a, a sacrifice to the devil. There are unaccountable disappearances of peasant children that Michel and Charles are, are, are thought to be behind, at least by the other people uh, on the estate. Uh, and here now is the incident that spawned the, the curse. The Count's little kid is missing one night. It's just nowhere to be found in the castle. And uh, given the rumors about missing children, the Count and some knights go to the cottage of Michelle and Charles. And when the, the Count bursts in and just sees Michelle Mauvais hovering over a boiling cauldron, he just kills Bad Mike right there on the spot. <laughs> uh, but of course, right, this little kid was just wandering the castle. Someone else has found him. He's totally safe. It's all a misunderstanding. Uh, Charles and, and, and Charles was not in the, the cottage when this happened, but he was nearby. So he knows what has happened. And as the, the, the count and his men, uh, his uh, retinue are, are going back to the castle, Charles jumps out of the woods and surprises the count. And he pronounces a curse on him, uh, a curse on him and also a curse on all his descendants that they will all die around age 32. And then he throws some sort of poison on the Count, who dies from this instantly. And then Charles just escapes into the, the woods. And ever since then, all the heirs have died around their 32nd birthday, which doesn't give Antoine much time left to live. Uh, we'll, we'll take that up in a, in a moment. But Brandon, how does this backstory work for you? Uh, I will say, uh, I did at the top of the show, but I'll say it again here, that as a medievalist, I found this backstory totally incredulous, but also kind of thrilling at the same time. But I want to know what you thought of it. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. I like the idea of like the town boogeymen being blamed for all this stuff, you know, children going missing. Uh, the first thing you see when you see a boiling cauldron in somebody's home is that they're boiling children and not making like a living stew or something like that. <laughs> uh, really, really confusing. The idea that the narrator has spent most of his childhood locked in this castle with Pierre, and Pierre has kept the boy narrator, before he learns about this curse on his on his 21st birthday, from going into the town because they don't want him to learn about the curse. It's all very strange. And so rather than this kid being socialized and like growing up in the town or learning about the estates his family once managed or learning any practical skill that any <laughs> state holder might need to learn, he's obsessed with figuring out what happened to his family and is reading dark occult books on witchcraft and alchemy in the library. So it's a really strange childhood. And then, yes, he does learn about this curse 
I also found it very incredulous. Uh, you know, he, here's an issue with the story. This takes place in France. I don't. I don't know why it is. Uh, why Lovecraft chose to have it take place in France. I think he just was learning some French words like uh, Le Sorcier or Mauvais or something like that. Uh, but the curse that Charles the Sorcerer pronounces upon the family is written in English. It's this. May ne'er a noble of thy murderous line survive to reach a greater age than thine. And then he throws the poison in the guy's face. Uh, it's convenient that it rhymes in English. And uh, it's a, it's just this kind of stuff that like you can really clean up after a second or third draft. You read, reread your story. You think about what's there, what's consistent, what's not. Um, I do love the playfulness of Lovecraft's imagination, though. And I that is not something that is a problem for me in the story. But the idea of a 32-year-old... Um, you know, later on, I'm going to have real questions about what's going on with calendars in the 13th century. It's not something I know a lot about, um, but I I don't know how aware an average person would be of just the passage of time or how much they're keeping track of that. Uh, maybe it's important for alchemy, the phases of the moon, and there's caught up with magic and stars and astronomy or astrology and stuff like that. Uh, and I guess I suppose that's how you would tell the time in some way if the you know you, if the stars return to the same position or something like that after you're here i am just spouting my own ignorance of the matter but uh i i you know to me that's a real question this idea of the curse and the the age and how this is all going to work out um but i like it. i like the playfulness of it and i like the imaginative nature of it and i i like that the narrator has only really done this with his life and it really highlights for me that Pierre is a terrible tutor and a terrible Alfred. <laughs> uh, he's one of the worst. And that it's no surprise to me that this estate has fallen into ruin if the lords of the estate have no practical skills. I mean, this is the problem of, of the Gothic lord in particular, often. Yes, we'll definitely be talking about this as a gothic story when we get into the discussion. I, I do want to talk about calendars for just a second, or, or really ways of, of keeping time, because we do, certainly our lives in the 21st century, and, and really for quite a long time, have been ruled by the minute hand, right? And we tend to take for granted that that is a, a recent phenomenon, that this is a phenomenon of the Industrial Revolution, right? That we've got time clocks to punch and, and so on, and that our lives need to be this regulated by the minute. But still, ancient people, even prehistoric people, uh, really needed to be able to keep track of the year and the things going on within the year. They didn't need to keep so much track of the hours of the day, but they definitely needed to keep track of the days of the year, the months of the year, and so on for agriculture and, and things adjacent to agriculture. And indeed, these are some of the earliest things that we see in civilization, even before writing, are tools for keeping time for or their calendars really is what i'm trying to say i mean we can even just think of stonehenge for an example uh i don't know maybe the pyramids are for this as as well but i don't know that's dipping back into uh uh von territory that we were here <laughs> last time so uh maybe we won't do that though i actually do kind of want to talk about that a little bit again later when we get to the discussion uh but 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 definitely keeping track of time is super important for agriculture and peasants in particular we're really good at this and in fact it's a it's a knowledge it's a form of peasant knowledge that is extremely extremely 
important. Of course, the church is also keeping track of time for religious holidays, which actually often are meant to coincide with the agricultural calendar as as well. I don't know. Maybe someday we'll do a whole episode on medieval calendars. I got really excited about that just now. I'm sure zero other people <laughs> did, but uh, but I got excited. Well, well, let's move on here. So Antoine does know that he's definitely going to die in 11 years, but I think like most of us, he really doesn't want to. So he tries to figure out what is going on. So maybe this is a saga of a centuries-long family feud in which the heirs of Charles Le Sorcier are murdering the descendants of his own family in, in secret, but he does discover that there are no known descendants of Charles Le Sorcier. So Therefore, the only other alternative is that it definitely must be actual black magic, and so Antoine gets to work on his own occult research, trying to find a spell that can break his family's curse. And we get a great line here about this. Isolated as I was, modern science had produced no impression upon me, and I labored, as in the Middle Ages, as rapt as had been old Michel and young Charles themselves in the acquisition of demonological and alchemical learning. But... Antron doesn't learn anything that can help him, and in the meantime, his guardian Pierre dies, and now he is all alone in the castle, with only about two years left to live, and he just gives up trying to find a a, a cure, trying to find a, a counterspell for this curse, and so... Now, with two years to go, he just passes his time exploring the ruined castle and the family lands, which he'd always been discouraged from doing by his guardian. We talked about that already, but now he's getting a chance to do this, and all of and and so several years are kind of alighted here in like really like two sentences from Lovecraft and then the story picks up again one day he's in one of the ruined towers trying to get down into the basement level when he finds his way blocked by an unexpected wall but hey check it out there's a trap door in the floor so uh let's see what's up with that he pulls us open follows the stairs down and it is a lot of stairs too it goes way deep under the castle and at the bottom, he finds an oak door that is closed and, and locked. He can't open it, and so he gives up here, too, and just turns around to head back up the stairs. But then, from behind him, he hears the door open. And opening the door is an incredibly old dude with gnarled, claw-like hands who is wearing the garb of a medieval peasant. And look, right we all know where this is going, but Antoine is <laughs> Antoine is kind of dumb about it. In fact, Antoine is incredibly dumb about it. So there's a bit more story here. The old dude speaks to Antoine in the debased form of Latin of the Middle Ages, and he continues the, the 13th century story that we got earlier. He explains to Antoine that Charles Le Sorcier had lived on and murdered the son and grandson of the cursed count. But as he's hearing this, uh, Antoine is still then wondering how all the other people died over the centuries because, uh, you know, as I said, he's pretty dumb. But then the the old man pulls out a, a vial of poison and clearly intends to kill Antoine with it. But Antoine now takes some action. He throws his torch at the man, which ignites him. So this old man with the gnarled fingers is on fire. Yeah, I mean, there there is an indication that, the, you know, the passage is soaked with nitre, I, I guess, or, or, you know, something that's inflammable. If this guy's been hanging out down here, his clothes are probably drenched in, you know, a flammable uh, fluid or something like that. But there's a sentence here I just want to point out that where, where the, the old dude has the file of liquid and the narrator of the story throws the the throws the torch and it's just something i want to point out about you know with my writer's hat on about keeping the focus of the action intact in here 
I, I just want to read this. Lovecraft writes this. Prompted by some preserving instinct of self-defense, I broke through the spell that had hitherto held me immovable and flung my now dying torch at the creature who menaced my existence. I heard the file break harmlessly against the stones of the passage as the tunic of the strange man caught fire and lit the horrid scene with a ghastly radiance. Lovecraft here like loses focus of the real action and important consequence of flinging the of flinging the torch at this old guy. Like we get this weird sense that his tunic catches fire, uh, the strange man catches fire, but it's lighting the scene and the file is breaking. And that seems to be the real important thing. Not that the narrator escaped danger by taking action. And and to me, that really jumped out as a, uh, kind of a note of knowing where the action is and, and focusing on the important elements of what you're writing and the important consequences of those things. Right. Well, action and agency are going to be, I think, the things that we're going to think about the most when we when we get to the discussion, which we will in just a few minutes. I, I should point out here too, right, that this is the same plot resolution that he used in The Beast in the Cave as well. The narrator is being besieged in some sense by uh, a strange other thing and then resolves this by throwing something kind of blindly at at the <laughs> at the, the other thing and uh, uh and then just succeeding kind of accidentally and and in fact actually some of the the wrap up is going to be very much the same which we can do now so the old man is on fire and the the screams and the horror of this cause Antoine to just faint right there on these steps and somehow also just not hit his head on the stone steps uh, or Maybe he does. I don't know. That might actually explain some things. Uh, but at any rate, when he comes to the, the old man burned to death, Antoine decides to investigate what's behind this this door, what, what's in this this room here to, to figure out who the old man was. And he finds uh, an alchemist laboratory, also a pile of gold, and also an exit out into the area surrounding the castle. So this is kind of the, the bat cave here. When he's done, Antoine you know, decides to, to head back up into the castle. But then as he's walking by, the dead man suddenly opens his eyes because it turns out he's not quite dead yet. And he just manages to say, Fool, can you not guess my secret? Have you no brain whereby you may recognize the will which has through six long centuries fulfilled the dreadful curse upon your house? Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? Know you not how the secret of alchemy was solved? I tell you, it is I, I, I that have lived for six hundred years to maintain my revenge, for I am Charles Le Sorcier. And uh, then he dies. These are his dying words. And, <laughs> and with that revelation, uh, the story is over. Yeah, I mean, this guy is now 30 or 31 years old. He's beaten the curse. Uh, he should be looking forward to a much better life. He should be selling the estate. Going down to that village, finding some woman, getting married, uh, restarting his life over, maybe getting a real education uh, that doesn't rely on occult <laughs> books or witchcraft. But instead, he remains in the castle for 90 years, well, or 60 more years, because of the sense of family pride. But he's an orphan, so that pride could have only been kind of transmitted to him through Pierre, who I just think is the worst character of this story. I really, <laughs> really have it in for Pierre, man. He did a number on this kid. But this 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 narrator also just watched Charles Le Sorcier burn to death and then wake up and talk to him and learn the secret of life. 
and is waiting 60 years to tell this story. Uh, this ending is is pretty funny. I mean, there's some weird stuff going on in general with this story about some sort of perceived conflict between rationality and uh, the occult or alchemy, which surprised me. We get we got that a little bit earlier on in the in the section that you read, because they each have their own forms of logic to them. So by the time we hit that paragraph that that you read about uh, isolated from about being isolated from modern science and. Uh, in that same paragraph, the narrator says, an unusually rational moment, I would even go so far as to seek a natural explanation. So there's this belief in inherent reason that doesn't seem to reach back to the Middle Ages in some way. There's just a lot of confused ideas and thoughts, I think, going on that really begin at this page 10, almost right in the middle of the story and carry the story to its end. Uh, but still... It's imaginative. It's a lot of fun. I suppose if I were eight or nine years old, that reveal might really give me chills if this was being read to me around <laughs> a campfire or in the dark or something like that. I mean, this would scare me if I was a child. Yeah, this is clearly a story written by a, a, a younger person. And I think it's really great for all, for all of that. I, I do like, though, I appreciate, and of course, this is one of the things that we try to do here is to treat the story uh, on its own terms and 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 but then also of course you know because we're not doing rigorous scholarship here we can try to do all sorts of things in a, in a single episode a single discussion of a story but I do like that you're trying to find the answers to why Antoine stays in this castle when he's free he's suddenly free of all of this that you're trying to find an answer inside the the text but I think that the real answer is that this is Lovecraft's fantasy this is this is his fantasy life is to be living in in an old castle with a medieval library and no one else around, but with you know somehow the the means to at least get enough to eat you know I don't know three or four cans of of beans a day I guess which <laughs> uh, yeah, well that's 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 middle aged Lovecraft eating only one can of beans a day I guess but this is his adolescent fantasy and of course you know Lovecraft's own family had some issues with uh, his, his father suffering from some kind of, of mental illness or neurological condition and his, his mother as as well eventually the, the family having lost his grandfather's fortune and all of those things we can see that biography here in this story that these are the things that adolescent Lovecraft is fantasizing about as he's writing a story though of course right this is also his Edgar Allan Poe fan fiction and in fact let's be more specific than that this is his fall of the House of Usher fan fiction Right, which is a story we definitely have to cover here someday. Absolutely, we'll have to cover that story here someday. We need to do more Poe in general uh, because I think we've only done one or two Poe stories. Yeah, I think you're right to point out that this is Lovecraft's fantasy to be alone in a castle with tomes of arcane, esoteric, and occult knowledge and no one to really interrupt him and his thoughts. And, you know, that's why it's funny to me that Pierre in the story, I think he only is in it for maybe four sentences, but he kind of looms large over the story. And Lovecraft, at least, in the voice of the narrator of the story, doesn't have a problem with Pierre, where I think a, a more well-adjusted person might be like, What's up with this guy? Like, yeah, he's the last family servant. He's the Alfred to the Batman. Uh, and all he's doing is encouraging this kid to stay in the castle, not 
mix with other kids, not go out and play, not go to school and study occult knowledge. I think this is Lovecraft's ideal tutor as well. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. Well, I think we are we're naturally getting into well picking some nits, I suppose. So uh, let's uh, let's just formally talk about the the craft, right? This is the first thing I really want to do. We normally put this as kind of our last discussion question is to to talk about the the craft, but this really has been the thing that we're going to these early Lovecraft stories for, and there is a lot here that really works. Certainly, this is better than anything that I ever wrote as a as a teenager, and maybe someday actually we'll uh, I don't know do an episode on something dumb. I wrote as a teenager just uh, you can give me my comeuppance or something uh, maybe i'll let you and valerie team up and, and just shred something we'll have I lovecraft wrote. do it we'll, we'll bring lovecraft uh, back yes. and, right, uh, right. Through, through necromancy we're gonna write that story that's definitely a short story that's about to get written by someone here at clay temple media for sure but uh, you know this whole story despite the fact that there's a lot that really works and i think the sentences are actually really awesome for the most part the whole thing is just an account of a passive accident, I think we could probably find some ways to improve the story as a story. So let let let's let's do that, right, Brandon? I guess if if I sent you this story and uh, and asked you for some feedback, what is the first suggestion that you would make here? The first question I would have is why is the narrator ninety years old? Why why did you make that choice? Why not have him tell the account as a thirty? five-year-old or something like that from the perspective of maybe a more vibrant or virile character instead of the reflections of a 90-year-old man who's clearly done nothing with his life. Either I would say if he's 90, you'd have to have him rediscover the elixir of life and become a ghoul in his own sort of sense and, and kind of continue this cycle of immortality or something like that without the curse or discover that immortality is itself is a curse that it's made him a monster, you know, in the vein of other great Gothic novels like Dracula or something like that. Uh, But that, that would be the first thing I would say to fix is, is you'd clear up a lot of character motivation and be able to clean up a lot of the story by having the narrator, tell it closer to the time of the events happening. And that adjustment might give you a small uh, perspective shift on how to tell the story that I think would have a snowball effect uh, throughout the rest of the story. You know, there's a, this passivity really does bother me and it really comes up in this line um, here towards the end of the story in this paragraph, which in my edition is has to be, you know, uh, 900, 1200 words long here. I I don't know how it is in your edition, Glenn. Uh, But it's it's the moment where he's wandering around the house because he doesn't know what else to do. And he finds the stairs and he goes down the stairs. Uh, And this is what he writes when he finds this door. Ceasing after time, my efforts in this direction, I had proceeded back some distance toward the steps where there suddenly fell to my experience one of the most profound and maddening shocks capable of reception by the human mind. Without warning, I heard the heavy door behind me creak slowly open upon its rusted hinges. Now, this is something I would expect an old door to do if 
I was uh, disrupting, you know, airflow or opening up a new passage or something like that. I don't know how this door was designed or how, how it's latched, but to be 90 years old and reflecting upon this moment as though you can't understand after years of living in an old house, why a door might open on its own, a door that might be 600 years old. Uh, to me, that is a real problem of the voice of the narrator of choosing to tell the story in this way. And I think that that, to me, is uh, – I think that adjusting that would have, a, as I said, a snowball effect on the perspective and the voice of the story. So that's where I would tell you to start if you sent me this. The, the, the age of the narrator was not really on my radar here as as part of the the solution. And I questioned, I, I, you know, I was curious about why we're told 90 specifically. I mean, we're definitely being told that he survives all of this, right? This is the kind of like um, 48 hours previously sort of opening actually in, in some ways, right? So that we want to know how he solves the problem, which is a great way to tell a story for sure. Uh, and I guess I just kind of thought that that was Lovecraft really making sure that we understand that he's he's made it. But I, I think that you must be on the right track here that Lovecraft is trying to suggest to us that he has then spent the years following this incident mastering the philosopher's stone himself to get this elixir of life. But that's not what this story is about, right? This story is not about the experience of Charles Le Sorcier. It's not the experience of living for centuries and centuries through artificial means, right? Or the the it's not about what happens when you try to do that or what that life might be like at all. This uh this story is about how the call is actually coming from inside the house, right? And right. You, you need to you need to <laughs> emphasize that. You do need to focus on that. And and that's where I would go with this. That would be my first fix, right? That this needs to be more of a detective story than it actually is. Though I will say that I mean I think for Lovecraft, this is this is a hardcore detective story which is, well, I went to the library, I read every book in the library, and, well, I didn't figure anything out, so I don't know. I guess I'll just, like, explore the ruins and look at the architecture and maybe check out the forest and stuff, and uh, I guess, you know, I tried my best, and uh, and that's it. But this would have been better, right? This would have been a stronger story if the narrator, if Antoine had really been systematically investigating things, if he had found something, like a small thread, something, that then he starts looking for or if the exploring the ruins and the the forest the area around the castle were part of his work right in the mornings i hit the, i'm in the library hitting the books in the afternoons i explore by you know the afternoon light helps me explore something like that and to put those two things together at the same time and to show how he's finding little tidbits from time to time, something in the books, some experience in the castle, right? Like, I don't know, finding a half-eaten loaf of bread or something that's not his, you know, something like that and getting curious about things and and starting to piece together that something is not right in the castle. Or even if he's not really, we the readers would, right? That would be a great effect for us as the, the readers. And you can still have this all kind of happen as kind of an accident at the end where maybe he's explored everything that he possibly can until now he notices this trap door that, you know, maybe happens not just because he finally decided to go look in this one particular tower, but I don't know, a storm or something could have happened. You know, something could have happened that 
made something visible to him that just wasn't before. Something like something like that, uh, a particular feature of the light on a particular day, or something like that. I'm just you know thinking of uh, Durin's Gate. <laughs> now, yeah, I mean it is it is a core problem here, and and this is and this is what I mean by the perspective by by having somebody so far removed from the action narrate the story. It's almost an excuse for there to not be any action in the story at all to say like, well, this is how it happened after all this time of reflecting on it. And uh, when I was 30, Pierre died. So I decided to explore the castle. Like what hold does Pierre have over this kid and this grown man that he is only interested in reading books. He is not interested in his immediate surroundings of what the world what he can experience even on the most basic level of the world he lives in, in terms of physical exploration. I mean, the character is almost too cerebral. And and I think that maybe is why Lovecraft chose 90. I mean, maybe Lovecraft felt like an old soul at 18 or something like that and <laughs> thought, you know, like I, you know, I get all I need from books and I don't need this world and, and something like that. Uh, certainly an attitude you can see in Lovecraft. But I think the fact that this character has not explored the castle, didn't have an experience at the age of 12 while exploring the forbidden rooms that Pierre told him not to go into, you know, didn't uncover any papers by it going into his father's old office or his grandfather's old office, that none of his knowledge comes from exploring the material world is a real problem that I think if you said this character is 30 years old, what are 30-year-olds like? What do they do in the world? Uh, are they active? Do they go after stuff? Are they explorers? What are they doing that you might have forced an adjustment on on some of this stuff? But it is a real problem that this narrator is not interested at all in the world in which he is surrounded with and thinks he can get more information from occult books that aren't even family histories, though he does read family histories, uh, than he can from finding artifacts in the castle. I mean, it's a real problem of the story. Just to sum it up, I mean, just to sum it up before we move on, yeah, the core problem here is that the resolution of this does not rely on any kind of active uh, participation by the the protagonist or the the main character the narrator of this story that it is resolved by a passive accident that's just not a great way to tell a story you can do that every once in a while especially if you're making that the point but this is actually something that is going to plague a lot of lovecraft stories uh, until we get to sort of his his middle and, and late phases i i think these sort of passive characters, these passive main characters who just happen to be standing around in the right place at the right time to observe something weird, something strange, something interesting happen and and then be able to to tell us about it in in some way. And so that's got to be the solution to this is to make the main character actually a protagonist, to make him actually doing something here, uh, to make this more of a, a story rather than kind of a, a, just a, a description of, of, of something happening. And, you know, this is something that I think we have harped on Lovecraft about before and other writers as as well. And in part, I will say, because this is a real tendency I have when I write as well. And so I am 
often just kind of reminding myself here using these episodes to to kind of just remind myself here. But I really also like Brandon the way the way that you're going with this, where you're you're thinking about the way that Lovecraft even thinks about childhood and and what it would be like to actually grow up with a guardian in a castle, because this is a totally different story than the way Gene Wolfe would write this, for example. Right? It's it's impossible for me to hear you talk about it from that perspective without just actually thinking how much this is kind of like the fifth head of Cerberus in some ways, right? That that if we'd had this sort of that if Gene Wolfe had written this story, it would have been this uh, you know Proustian sort of memory of exploring this house when he was a kid and kind of uncovering all of this, uh, thinking of uh, and thinking of Pierre as something more akin to Mister Million or something like that, right? I mean, I think that's a that's a crossover story I would love to read. I am really troubled by Pierre in this story. I can't uh, I can't express that enough. I do not like this character. And I am sorry to have encountered him in a story or literature in general. Like I said, he's only in here for four sentences, but just the effect he, the, the fact that he's here in this story at all, uh, and the fact that this narrator has lived for 90 years and done nothing means he had a really bad teacher and guardian. Well, that's all the the story doctrine I think that we'll do for this. I think we've come up with some interesting ways. We, of course, would love to hear what what other listeners would do to in, improve on this story, to doctor it up a little bit, or just do it and send it to us. We'd love to we'd love to read your version of this, or, or take any of our other writing prompts. I think that we've thrown out here and, and do that. Uh, but I want to move on now to to, to looking at some of the, the themes that are, are are here in this story. Some of the themes that are present in this story. Look, Lovecraft was a teenager when he wrote this story, but there's some. Interesting worldviews here and worldviews of a teenager. But I think that we can see here some some nascent things that are gonna show up in his later stories. And maybe more importantly, things that show up in the extraordinary number of letters that he wrote. Lovecraft wrote something like a hundred thousand letters in his lifetime, and we have tens of thousands of them that have survived, right? So what we have of his writing in letters to people uh, is much greater than the actual fiction output by several orders of, of magnitude, in fact. And one of the things that we know about Lovecraft from these letters is that he was extraordinarily political. He was invested in the political news of the day or the political issues of the day and wrote at length uh, uh, about them. And in reading those letters, we get a real sense of his worldview, his opinions on all on all sorts of things like the role of the federal government versus state governments. Uh, immigration was a huge issue for him. The First World War, the uh, rise of both communism and fascism. He was really concerned with all of these things. And we can see some political ideology in this story that, you know, is not explicitly about that. And so the the first thing I want to talk about here, and maybe really the only thing on this topic, is the way that Lovecraft is thinking about class, or maybe not thinking about, but what is happening here maybe subconsciously about class in this story. Because it strikes me that this story is at heart a conflict between two families, one rich and one poor, one powerful and one not. And the real tragedy in this story is not so much that people have been murdered, but that some peasants have risen above their station, learned secret knowledge that they shouldn't possess, and undone a nice aristocratic family. Some of that, right, is just a gothic trope, but I think some of this is Lovecraft's own worldview. I think this is how he feels about the working class, as we know, in his letters. Uh, And it's especially how he feels about immigrants uh, in terms of his own family's fortunes. 
That's a really fascinating point. I mean, reading this story as a kind of family duel is interesting because reading reading the story as a family duel between two classes who each have power in their own way. One is maybe granted naturally through the way power ought to be granted through landholding and wealth and the ownership of other people or the ownership <laughs> of land that other people work. Uh, you know, maybe that's what Lovecraft thinks as uh, the order, the proper order of power and of uh, wealth. And the other family has power that's gained unnaturally through the use of occult means through magic. Uh, and yet one family is the villain, though no real crimes have been tied to them. I, again, I think the story would have been stronger if Godfrey had been found in the pot, uh, the cauldron, if he was being boiled alive and, you know, the evil would have been explicit for the Mauvais for uh, the evil actions would have been explicit for the Mauvais rather than just the kind of rumor, the rumor mongering and scapegoating that they seem to represent to me in this story that somehow it's that if the peasants can focus on this one group, this one family in the town and blame them for everything that's going wrong, they don't have to look at the real structures of power that might be <laughs> allowing children to go missing or uh, the ineffect the ineffectiveness of the ruling class to really do anything about that or speak to it, that they need this family, the Mauvais, to exist in the town in order to have this scapegoat. And so there is that element of class here and the proper way to gain power and the illicit way to gain power. And it's clear that Charles Le Sorcier is the villain. He's lived for 600 years, uh, but he just kills somebody once every 32 years. Um, which is crazy. What does he do with the rest of his time? There, there are a lot of questions here, but I think <laughs> you're right that this points to a kind of attitude that isn't fully fleshed out here because Lovecraft doesn't explicitly display through the story that these people are evil, just that they are gaining power through illicit means. Uh, and, that is what's interesting to me about this kind of class conflict is these people are going the wrong these people are going about getting power the wrong way and they shouldn't even have access to it but there are all sorts of illicit ways for people who don't deserve it to have power and wealth and i think that that is maybe on lovecraft's mind a little bit and when those people get that power they do evil things uh whereas it's harmless even though I'm living in a chateau of disrepair, I'm relatively harmless. I haven't hurt anybody with my power and wealth, uh, and my family hasn't either. They've all been pretty good people. Something you point to here, Brandon, is the question of who's a victim in this story? Because actually, Antoine and Charles Sorcier are both victims in this story right? But only one of them is actually presented as a victim and certainly presented as sympathetic. But Charles' dad was killed unnecessarily, totally unjustly by someone who lives entirely outside of the law, right? That there are no checks and balances against this count. He is above the law. He is the law in this territory. So he can kill indiscriminately and kills Charles's dad. And so 
then he's mad about it and does something about it, which actually that is kind of the Batman story, I suppose, right? Yeah, absolutely. But he's not presented with any sympathy at all. It's really interesting. I would love to know if Lovecraft played around with that. Should they find the kid in the cauldron? Should they not? Did he, you know, did he go back and forth on that? I don't think we have any notes on this story, but that's a real interesting observation there. If I were writing this story now, you know, and I and I am thinking about a gothic story for our, you know, our shared universe, uh, trying to write one with an invest investigative aspect. Uh, I don't know if it's my strong suit, but I'm certainly going to give it a shot. Uh, but you know, if I were write, to write this story now, I would have the, the narrator find like child bones in the castle, and then have to maybe encounter a conflict with what he was told about his family and what it means to inherit this castle, uh, what the responsibility of the ruling class is, and, and present it more as a story of the ruling class here that's living above the law, really truly living above the law. And maybe both families are evil in their own way, rather than just saying, this is natural to have power and wealth, even though it's gone now, it's really nobody's fault. It happens. And then have this other family who is evil just because they're trying to get at power through illicit means, even though they're really clearly scapegoated uh, and, and the town lets them remain. Can you imagine living in a town where kids go disappearing all the time and you're like, those guys are doing it. And the lord of the town is doing nothing about this. Nobody's really doing anything about it. Uh, but we need this. And maybe we know what's going on. Maybe we don't. But we're just going to blame it all on these people who are trying to turn lead into gold and like peeing on wheat and stuff and doing weird <laughs> stuff. You know, like what's going on here? Um, it's a very strange sort of conception of a village, of a town, of an estate, of scapegoating, of of dynamics here there's just a lot uh that's going on i do like the family curse aspect and the elixir of life aspect though this is a huge part of what is happening here in Lovecraft's adolescent understanding of what it means to be an aristocrat. And we should be clear that Lovecraft thinks that he is an aristocrat, even though America does not technically have an aristocracy in the sense of a uh, hereditary class of people with uh, codified special laws or exemption from uh, certain rules and, and so on. He thinks of himself as an aristocrat because he can trace his family lineage back to the the 17th century, uh, that his family has been in America for a very long time. So he thinks of himself as a, a true blue American and a member of the aristocracy. And his family was wealthy until really his own day, his own generation. And so he thinks he's living in a gothic romance, right? He thinks of himself as Antoine. Antoine is Lovecraft in this story. But one of the things that we clearly see in this story is that Lovecraft has not really at all thought about what an aristocracy or an upper class, a ruling class is for, what their role would actually be in a society. For adolescent Lovecraft, and this doesn't really change all that much, I don't think, for even middle-aged Lovecraft, but his 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 conception of an aristocracy here in this story, at any rate, is simply that what the aristocracy does is just be better than 
the lower class, to be better than peasants. Their job is just to live in a nicer house. Their job is to uh, have access to to learning and uh, bathing and so on, to simply be better, to be adjacent to, not even adjacent to, but actually to be wholly cut off from the lower classes, to simply exist uh, outside, to exist separate from the lower classes and to be better than them in these ways that Lovecraft measures moral goodness, which is largely, I think, really about education uh, and and uh, being a member of the, the literati, for example. And he has no thinking here at all about what actually is a count, what actually is a peasant, what are counts for, and what are what are peasants for? What are peasants doing? In what way is the aristocracy actually dependent on exploiting the labor of the masses? And what's the count's role in maintaining that exploitation and managing that exploitation? Right? His he absolutely would have needed to be investigating these missing children. That's literally the only thing he is for. That's why he gets to live in the castle. Also, the children who are going missing here, and I want to be clear about what peasants are, by the way. Peasants in this context, these are going to be servile labor. These are going to be serfs. These are going to be people who are tied to this land, land that is owned by the counts in this, uh, owned by this family. The peasants are tied to that land. The peasants themselves are not actually owned as slaves by the count, but the land is owned. The land that they farm is owned by the count, and the peasants are not legally allowed to ever leave. It's a job you can never quit. It's a job that your children are going to inherit and can't ever quit either. So, it's not just that, hey, some kids are going missing and maybe you should investigate because that's a good right thing to do when you have the authority and power to do that. But also, actually, someone is stealing your future labor force that allows you to have nice things. So you've got some even cynical in- investment in investigating these missing children, right? <laughs> but Lovecraft is not thinking about this as a system of of, of resource allocation or a system of resource uh, exploitation or labor exploitation. He's not thinking about that at all. He just knows that these classes exist and that for him, the aristocrats exist simply to be better than the peasants. And that was really fascinating for me to see here. The lack of understanding of how these sorts of economies function is a real problem in the story because it is a daydream. This is like Lovecraft's daydream with uh, some plot dressing on it. His idea is, what if I could investigate anything I wanted to, eat enough, you know, not too much, but I don't need to worry about where food comes from, and just do exactly what I want, which is live a life of leisure. That doesn't hurt anybody. I can do this and just hole up and, and live this life. The f- It really strikes me as a backwards attitude that the first investigation that the narrator of this story does is through the library and not by being actually interested in what the people of the village have been saying about the castle for 600 years or not to go into old rooms. It's a really backwards approach to being in the world that this narrator has. And I, you know, I'm going to put my foot down here. I blame Pierre. Once again, Pierre's done a terrible job of raising this uh, narrator, but I also think this is kind of Lovecraft's attitude that books are where life is. That's where comfort is. That's where you can get away from all the bad stuff. And the world is bad first, though the good in it is learning. It's 
booked. It's mystery. Um, and you don't get that from the real world. And, and I think that that's this narrator's approach. And I think that this has to be Lovecraft's attitude at the age of 18 um, because he, he's not interested in anything and how anything works or functions. He's interested in keeping the rain off of himself, uh, eating what he can, when he can, and being in a nice big library. The books in this castle, the, the medieval library in this castle is something else that really fascinated me here. And this is you know, where I am going to be picking some, some nits about Lovecraft's understanding of the, the Middle Ages when you know, he's in high school. But why does this castle even have a medieval library, right? These counts would not have been literate, or at least almost certainly anyway, would, they would have been very unlikely to be literate, I will say, because literacy is a, a tool in the in the 12th century and the 13th century and it's not a tool that counts need that's not what they do that's not what they're for literacy is in fact almost entirely the special purview of the religious class of priests and and monks and that's actually one of the things that makes especially uh, monks also priests i guess to some extent uh, an important component of society is that they have almost a monopoly on literacy as a technology. It's almost their secret technology that they protect from other like industrial espionage, I guess we might say, because they have to be because there is a need for aristocratic families, for counts and barons and, and kings and so on to have things written down. When they do that though, they get a monk or a priest to do that for them. And they have they employ these people to to do this. It's not a skill that they necessarily learn and they don't have libraries like like this like the like what lovecraft envisions here but lovecraft's vision of what it means to be an aristocrat what it means to be the rich powerful person in a society is to have a library and he's taking that very modern notion and very personal notion as well and transplanting it into a, a world a historical world where that simply would not have been true now i would not quibble if he was finding uh, 16th 17th 18th century books in this library but a medieval library in particular uh that strikes me as extremely unlikely and i would want the backstory about how this castle came to have a medieval library potentially at some later point uh maybe during the french revolution or something like that this uh the the library of the nearby monastery because there would have been one, uh, made its way to the castle or something like that, right? But Lovecraft is not thinking along those terms because having a library and being an aristocrat mean the same thing to him. That's right. And this castle also doesn't have a chapel or anything like that. It has an alchemy lab and a library, but no, <laughs> you know, no chapel. So it's a very strange castle indeed. Clearly, we're not quite doing it right. I mean, all we I guess we have little libraries in our houses, and uh, uh, we have certainly podcast studios. Maybe that's the same thing as an alchemy lab, <laughs> I suppose. Well, I think we have we have definitely picked a lot of nits uh, in this story, but I, I do want to reiterate that I really enjoyed this story. The sentences I, in this story I found to be extraordinarily beautiful. The backstory was really interesting. I think this was a fascinating look into Lovecraft's adolescent worldview. And, and it's going to give us a lot of fodder as we get into his later works to look back, I think, in particular to this story and track some of the, the things that are going on here uh, in ways that just were not true when we did The Beast in the Cave, for example. Though there are things in The Beast in the Cave, too, that we'll track as we uh, as we go on. But I really enjoyed this story. But I think that it is, uh, it is time for us to uh, leave it behind. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brendan Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, and let us know what you thought of The Alchemist. 
and what you thought of the craft of the story and the discussion in general. We'd love to hear from you. I do also want to take a moment here just to to remind people about our Patreon votes because as we're recording this, we're uh, we're getting ready to uh, release one. And I just want to remind people, uh, especially new Patreon supporters, we've had uh, several lately, and we're we're very thankful for that. Thank you so much for for joining us there. Uh, that those do come to you in your email. They come from our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail dot com. Uh, that I think at least fifty percent of the time, especially if you're using Gmail, will end up in your uh, promotions tab. May end up in your spam folder as well so if you don't see that by the uh, uh the tenth of uh, of any odd numbered month you should uh, you should definitely contact us to make sure that you uh that you're able to that you're able to have your say in uh, what we cover here on elder sign uh, next time we're going to be back with the uh, last story in the current batch of patreon selected stories that we're doing this is the Ereshkigal working by Jonathan L Howard until then we greet you and say farewell <laughs>